Welcome to Konrad's Journey Through the Middle East, the podcast by the Konrad Adenauer Foundation's Syria Iraq office from Beirut, featuring discussions and analysis on contemporary political, social, and economic issues in the MENA region. My name is David Labude, and I'm research fellow at the CAS Syria Iraq office. Today, I would like to talk about Iraq's Joker, a young Iraqi protester who became the leader of a group that fought for a systemic change in the country. The Joker is an alias that Mustafa Maki Karim had chosen to hide his real identity when he took part in the so-called October Revolution that shook Iraq in 2019. The uprising was mainly driven by young people who came of age in the post-Saddam Hussein era, but whose dreams for a better future did not materialize because of a ruling elite they saw as corrupt, unqualified, and beholden to foreign interests. Mustafa and his friends, as many other Iraqis, wanted to change that. They demanded transparency, more inclusiveness, better services provided by the state, and an end to the political system that is based on ethno-sectarian proportionality. Simona Fulton is a journalist based in Baghdad who has covered Iraq since 2017 for PBS, Al Jazeera, France 24, and others. Her work focuses on in-depth coverage of issues associated with armed conflict, including human rights, social justice, and corruption. And she has produced a documentary on Iraq's Joker and the struggle of young Iraqis for a political change. To further discuss her documentary, as well as the political situation and the protest movement, three weeks before the Iraqi parliamentary election, I am happy to be joined today by Simona. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. Simona, how did you come up with the idea to choose the Joker for a documentary? And how did you get to meet him, that is Mustafa Maki Karim, eventually? So uh, I covered Iraq's protests since day one, since uh, October 1st, 2019. And I first met Mustafa on the front lines in November. So about a month after the demonstrations had begun. And at that time, I didn't think I was doing a documentary at all. It was for a news report about how the clashes between the demonstrators and the security forces were affecting uh, Rashid Street, which is this old street in downtown Baghdad, which uh, dates back to the Ottoman times and which has all these beautiful old buildings. So we were, we were shooting a story about that and we, we came across his group, which was very close to the barricades, to the front lines, and, and we ended up interviewing him. And then a few months later, I think it was, I think it was February 2020, that's when I first uh, had the idea to do a documentary about the protest, to really have a longer term view about what had happened, about all these events that we had been covering, but always very focused on the news cycle. So uh, we began looking for characters. So we wanted to go back to people we had interviewed in the beginning to see how they had changed, whether they were still protesting, whether they had abandoned the protests. And it wasn't easy because a lot of people were disillusioned. A lot of them had left the protest square. And I remembered, I remembered Mustafa that he had been a very charismatic person, um, but it was a challenge to find him because he, he didn't give us his real name when we first met him because of fear. He didn't show us his face and he refused to give us his phone number. So then we started uh, really what ended up being a month, a three month long search to find him. 
And uh, we ended up finding him again in May 2020, which was extremely exciting. And, and that's when we immediately realized that this is a character who embodies a lot of the issues, uh, a lot of the struggles, um, a lot of um, you know, the repression that protesters went through. So it, was, it became clear pretty quickly that he was a very good character to really tell the story of the protests. And did Mustafa ever tell you why he chose to disguise as the Joker? I mean, why didn't he pick another superhero, for example? So the, the symbol of the Joker really is something that rose to prominence in popular culture, not just in Iraq, but also Lebanon, which witnessed simultaneous protests uh, around the same time. And we're also, just like in Iraq, protesters in Lebanon were driven by very similar grievances the lack of jobs, poverty, a corrupt a ruling class. And you actually saw the symbol of the Joker mushrooming in both of these countries. And I think it had something to do with the film, The Joker, um, Todd Phillips' film, which was released in the United States in October 2019, which is also when the protests began. So I think that played a role in it. Now, of course, the Joker is, is a controversial and quite multifaceted figure. He is, in many instances, if you look back in popular culture, he's portrayed as a villain, as a criminal mastermind, a psychopath, a serial killer, the arch enemy of Batman and Robin. And that's not, of course, the characteristics that the protesters identified with. They saw him as a symbol, as a character who challenges power, who stands up for the downtrodden, who, who stands up to an, you know, a ruling class that oppresses the poor. And there are also some parallels between Baghdad and Gotham City, in terms of, you know, the people living in unemployment and poverty. So I think that's what inspired the protesters to use this symbol. And of course, it was also, there was a more practical objective, which was to, to hide their identities. They were so afraid of being targeted that they used different means to hide their faces. And the Joker mask was a very convenient way of doing so. True. I have been to the protests in Lebanon. Our office is located in Beirut. And I do actually recall now that I have seen many Lebanese protesters disguised as the Joker uh, at the same time. Did you see other superheroes or elements of popular culture in the Iraqi uprising? Not to the extent of the Joker. And uh, I mean, I have to say that also Mustafa was one of many people who wore the Joker mask, it's just that he became the most prominent one because he was often photographed uh, by various news agencies, by international ones, by local ones. So he kind of became the face of the Joker in Iraq. But of course, many other protesters wore the mask. And uh, some of them also, uh, I think I saw one uh, guy in his group who wore the mask of the V from the film V for Vendetta, which is a, a character that represents... I guess, an anarchist who tries to ignite a revolution. And so it's, it's also very representative of the, what the protesters were trying to do uh, in terms of seeking complete systemic change and really the overthrow of the political uh, system. But the Joker was by far the most popular superhero character that came up during the protests. Perhaps let's talk about Mustafa uh, himself. I have watched your uh, documentary and uh, he explains that he has uh, changed in the course of the protests. Uh, could you tell us about him a little bit? How was he when you met him first? And how did the events, the struggle and repression, I think he was also shot several times, um, affect him? 
Yeah, it was really striking to watch him evolve both uh, physically and mentally. And I think it really exemplified the toll the repression and violence took on the protesters. I remember when I first met him in Rashid Street in November, he was this energetic, enthusiastic young man. He was physically very fit. He was in shape. You could see that he was extremely motivated to, to remain at the front lines and to be there. And when I, when I met him the second time in May, it took me a while to recognize him because he had, first of all, lost a lot of weight. He had, he appeared shorter because he was just not as confident in terms of his, his body language. He was walking on crutches because he had just sustained an injury. And most significantly, he had lost eyesight uh, in his left eye as a result of the birdshot that security forces were using uh, in the spring to target protesters. And that wasn't immediately evident because the injury had healed. So you couldn't tell that he actually couldn't see on one eye. But then if you noticed, if you watched him for a while, you could actually realize that he was half blind. So it was it was extremely striking to see how what this person had been through, how it, it had affected him. And also you could tell in terms of you know, how he would respond to different questions, questions that I had asked back in November that I would ask again in May, in July, in October. And the answers would be different, reflecting, for example, the disillusionment. I remember back in, uh, back in November, there was so much optimism that they could actually achieve the systematic change. And of course, when then Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi resigned on November 30th, there was this outburst of joy that, they had achieved something because they did force for the first time in Iraq's modern history since 2003 to force a prime minister to resign. So it was quite an achievement. But what they only realized months later is that the political class that had brought him to power was very much determined to stay. And he could, you could see how he would, this optimism was just, which is like gradually fade away. There was growing disillusionment. There was, disappointment about not just the lack of change, about being abandoned by other protesters, about being abandoned by the international community. All of that started to become more pronounced as the months went on. And I think Mustafa was unique in a way in how he reflected on these things. There were a lot of protesters who refused to acknowledge that the protest movement had failed in its original goals. And he was very outspoken. He was very open about the disappointment that he experienced. I can imagine that he was traumatized on the one hand by what has happened to him physically, but also, as you have just said, by the events, uh, the disappointments they have been through and they have uh, experienced, especially the failure of, of many demands uh, they had. And talking about they, um, Mustafa was not alone. Um, he was part or the head of the group that called itself Armored Division of Tahrir Square, which is a central square in uh, Baghdad. What exactly did they do and how did they meet? Did they know each other before? How were they organized and uh, how many were they? Could you tell us a little bit about a typical day, so to say, at the protests for, for this group? Yeah, so this group, the Armored Division of Tahrir, or in Arabic, Farqadra Tahrir, 
it was formed a few days after the protests began, began and it happened very spontaneously in a way. There were a bunch of young men who were facing off of security forces as they were using live ammunition, as they were using military grade tear gas canisters to aim directly at protesters. And they were vulnerable. So they, they realized we need to protect ourselves somehow, which is when they started wearing body armor and also shields to, to protect themselves as they demand the front line of the protests. And that experience at the front line, it created a really special bond. It was sort of a brotherhood, a very intense bond created through bloodshed. And it was something that was very unique to them. And you could see that they had left behind their entire lives before their studies, their jobs, their previous friends. And they completely invested themselves, not just into this movement, but also in these friendships. Um, and I think in a way, this group, it, it also was very representative of the protest because there was no strict hierarchy. There was no official leader, although Mustafa was very much the de facto leader who would always lead them at the front lines, who would step up to mediate disputes, who would uh, motivate them really to, to carry on. So it was a very, a very special bond that they experienced. They would spend entire you know, months on ends together without going home. They would sleep together in the tents that they had set up in Tahrir Square. They would cook together. That really forged this unique relationship that they had. And I think it's also one reason why, why they were reluctant to, to go home and to really to give up on the protest because it was such an experience, such an intense experience for them. I can imagine that the moments they shared at Tahrir Square and what they achieved, as well as the setbacks they experienced, brought them closer together. Um, how did they see themselves? I mean, what was their role in the protests? And how did other Iraqis, the media and other protesters see the armored division? Did they receive any attention and how were they perceived? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's not a straightforward answer because as we know, this was not a uniform protest movement. There were many different viewpoints about what the protests wanted to achieve and more importantly, how they should achieve those goals. And for some people, it was activism. For others, it was civil disobedience. For others, it was political organization. And for some like Mustafa and his group, it, was, it meant manning the front lines. So they saw themselves as somebody as people who were protecting the protesters, who were preventing security forces from advancing from the front lines to Tahrir Square, which was the epicenter of uh, the protest movement. And uh, sometimes they would use, for example, they would throw stones, they would throw Molotov cocktails or petrol bombs at security forces to, to prevent them from, from advancing. And there were a lot of people within the protest movement who disagreed with, uh, with those ways who criticized them for, for provoking security forces, uh, who said that this is not our way, we want to be a peaceful protest movement. And then there were also, of course, the Iranian-backed armed groups and their media outlets who, who would label them as, as joker gangs. And what they really meant with that is that these were groups who were receiving outside support, that they were trying to overthrow the Iraqi state, and they were trying to, to taint their uh, reputation. And I think it's important to mention that there, there is a lot of confusion about whether you know, the violence within the protest movement, because let's be clear, 
there was violence also from the side of the protest movement, even though it was very small compared to the violence from the state and from the armed groups. There is confusion about whether that came from normal protesters or whether that came from infiltrators or saboteurs. And in my mind, the way I observe things over the months, is there is no doubt that the bulk of any kind of violence within the protest movement came from political parties who tried to infiltrate it, who tried to co-opt it, to use it for their own political goals. Um, we've had, you know, repeated knife attacks in Tahrir Square. We had uh, an armed group that attacked protesters near Sinek Bridge. So all of that was very much different political parties who, who tried to incite violence to taint the reputation of the protests. But I think it's also important to say that uh, there was a little bit of violence among the protesters who were not co-opted, who manned the front lines. And I think you can argue that every movement has those people who man the barricades, who are fearless, who are prepared to give their lives um, to defend themselves. But I think we also have to contextualize this because we hear a lot from the government or from the security forces, like, you know, some of the demonstrators are violent, but you have to put that in the context of the violence that they faced, the, the indiscriminate repression, the live ammunition, the, the military grade tear gas canisters, the kidnappings, all of that. If you put that in context, throwing a stone at security forces is of course, still a form of violence, but in the end, it's, it's not at the same level as what they witness. And I think in the end, one of the things that motivated Mustafa to speak to us was that he wanted to set the record straight, that he wanted to tell people, I am not this person that you make me out to be. I am not a criminal. I am not a murderer. I am uh, somebody who is trying to fight for my rights and the rights of the country. It seems to me that Mustafa and his friends, as other protesters, were right in the center, not only of the clashes in the streets of, for instance, Baghdad, but as well of the struggle over the narrative on, on who the protesters are and what their agenda actually is. I believe the attempts of certain political groups or parties to label them as purely violent without a political cause showcase that. In this regard, you have mentioned, amongst others, uh, groups close to Iran, political parties as well as Iran-backed units within the security apparatus that attack the protesters and or try to delegitimize the protests. Iraq is of strategic interest to Iran and to the United States. And while the large-scale protests shook the country, At the same time, the American-Iranian proxy war continued on Iraqi soil. How did that affect Mustafa and his group and perhaps the protest movement in general? It affected them a lot. So the protest movement, it, you know, one of the main slogans was Urid Vatan, which, is, which means uh, I want a homeland. And I think for many people it meant different things, but there was a general theme of opposing outside influence and especially Iranian influence in the country, which has been so pervasive since 2003, but especially under Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi, who came to power in 2018. Iran was really seen as having, as wielding vast influence and the armed groups that are backed by Iran were seen as having free reign to, to really act outside of the formal chain of command. So the protest movement 
advance this idea of having a nationalist government that really represents the interests of Iraqis and Iraqis alone. And that was something that, of course, directly challenged Iran's influence in the country, which is why uh, these affiliated groups embarked on the systemic campaign to undermine and crush uh, the movement. And they increasingly began using as a pretext that this movement was funded and organized by Western actors. There was never any evidence for this, but it was used as an argument to undermine the movement. And of course, the, the fact that Western embassies issued statements that were supportive of the protesters or even published pictures of diplomats meeting with protest leaders played into the hands of these groups. And then so what we began to see at the same time as the protests drew larger and larger crowds, we began to see a growing number of rocket attacks on US interests in the country. And these rocket attacks eventually uh, provoked a response from the United States, which, uh, which targeted these armed groups in Al-Qaim in Western Iraq. That in turn resulted in uh, over two dozen fatalities on the part of Qatayb Hezbollah that led to the siege of the U.S. embassy here uh, in Baghdad, which in return led to the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general who was killed in a drone strike on January 3rd. And as these attacks escalated on Iraqi soil, the attention shifted away from the protests, which were the largest grassroots, grassroots movement since 2003. They shifted towards this proxy war between the US and Iran, which was playing out on uh, Iraqi soil. And it gradually eroded international attention. It shifted priorities. For example, the US-led coalition was downsizing operations. It simply completely diverted attention from this movement to US-Iran tensions. And I think there was a huge setback for the protesters. And hearing all that, I mean, the tensions between the US and Iran on Iraqi soil, the clashes between Iraqi security forces and protesters. Have you ever been afraid when, when covering these events? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm generally somebody who's afraid pretty easily and okay. pretty jumpy with, uh, when there's gunfire. And I think it was especially the case during the first days of the protests in the, the first 10 days, October 2019, when events were evolving so quickly and there were, you know, there, there were no front lines, there were no barricades and the nature of the violence would change almost from one day to another. And we, the journalists who were covering it here on the ground, we were in the middle of it. We were with the protesters. It's not like we were embedded with a security force just like, for example, during the war against ISIS, where we had some kind of protection. We had no protection. And I remember particularly this day when suddenly there were snipers on top of rooftops. And I remember interviewing protesters in the streets who were telling me that just a few hundred meters away, several people had been killed that day by a sniper who was located on top of a nearby building. And it is quite frightening because you just cannot... You cannot manage the situation. You cannot control the situation. But whatever danger we faced as journalists, it was nothing compared to what protesters encountered, compared to what activists encountered. And while we were shooting this documentary, I was constantly worried about Mustafa's own safety and uh, the safety of his family. There was one sequence that we filmed uh, when we visited his home 
And that was something that we had to plan really carefully because we knew that his family had already received threats, that the militias knew where he lived, that they knew that he was a protester and he was, he was a wanted man. So we had to make sure that we as journalists were not noticed going to his house so that there wouldn't be an additional backlash. So that was something that was probably, I would say, the, the trickiest thing that we filmed for that documentary. And we had to plan every single step. We, we arrived in two different cars. I arrived like an hour earlier, um, you know, wearing an abaya, wearing a mask, my camera in a plastic bag. So it looked like I was just coming from a market doing shopping. And then the, my, my cameraman would arrive an hour later. And so we really tried our best to minimize the risk for, for Mustafa and for his family. And I think that's something that was always one of the major concerns we had because on the one hand, we wanted to tell their stories and they wanted their stories heard. But at the same time, there was always this worry, what if the story will put them into more danger? What if something will happen afterwards? How are we going to deal with that? So that was always rather difficult throughout um, the entire protest. Let me go back to uh, the aspect of violence you have mentioned. Is there any specific group within the security apparatus that was particularly violent against the protesters? Uh, did you come across any group or did the protesters tell you? The protesters definitely told us. It was very difficult for us um, to investigate of our own simply because of the danger uh, involved in that, because also media were targeted, especially in the beginning, several Media organizations were raided by armed groups because of because they covered the protests. So it was not something that was easy for us to find out. But the protesters would definitely tell us who they thought was responsible, who were the groups they received threats from, who were the groups they thought were responsible for uh, using live ammunition, for kidnapping them, etc. And it, it was not easy to corroborate for us as journalists, because media to some extent were also a target. But I think there is still quite conclusive evidence that it was mostly Iranian-backed armed groups who were responsible for, for the violence. There is definitely also parts of, of the more regular security forces, like the anti-right police, who were responsible. But I think we can safely say that uh, the bulk of violence was committed by uh, these armed groups who acted outside of the chain of command and who would, you know, despite orders from the prime minister, despite orders from military commanders, use force. And the, the government didn't take any steps to really rein them in. So the government has really, to a large extent, failed to bring um, these groups to, to account. This is, of course, a very important aspect the Iraqi government must tackle, because without holding people accountable, the atmosphere of impunity will unfortunately continue. Um, talking about the situation at the moment, what happened to the armored division? Are they still in touch and, and waiting to return to Tahrir Square? So the group is a good example of what happened to the protests as a whole. They have uh, disintegrated. They too were, were fragmented and you know, they had different opinions. So there was, there was definitely you know, different visions about how they should go about their activism. 
but many of them also left the protest because they were afraid, because they were threatened. And in the end, Tahrir Square, the, the sit-in, the tents were cleared on October 31st, uh, 2020. And that's when the last group of them that was still there left the square and Mustafa and several others then fled to Erbil in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. Did he ever tell you why he uh, fled to Erbil? Uh, what were his uh, reasons? A lot of protesters and activists fled to Erbil simply because Erbil and Kurdistan in general, is they're controlled by different security forces. So they feel that the armed groups that are targeting them in Baghdad will not have access there. Of course, you know, it's, uh, it's ironic, though, because if you have demonstrations against the Kurdish ruling elite, those demonstrations are also violently crushed. But Kurdistan is, is still considered a safe haven for protesters from Baghdad because they're not protesting against uh, the government in Erbil. So they generally feel uh, safe there. Many of them are trying to apply for asylum in, in European countries, thinking that there's just no way for them to go back to resume their previous lives. But unfortunately, it seems that Uh, many European countries consider Erbil as a, as a safe haven. So I think their prospects for actually obtaining asylum are pretty, pretty limited. But the truth is that, you know, these youngsters, they have, they have no prospects in, in Kurdistan. And they also don't really have, you know, an avenue to return to Baghdad and resume their previous life. So it's, uh, it's pretty heartbreaking to watch. Um, how do you assess Iraq's protest movement today, perhaps more in general? Do you think uh, they might resume somehow? So physically, yes, the protests have been uh, removed and you no longer see uh, sit-ins in, in any cities in, in Iraq, South or Baghdad or Nasriya. But I think it's still the most significant grassroots movement in recent history. And something like that doesn't happen without leaving behind some kind of impact. Um, and I particularly think that the nationalist nature of the protests was unique, uh, as well as the vocal opposition to Iran's influence and to religious clerics as powerful as Muqtada al-Sadr, for example, or even Sistani. I had never before heard young people being so critical of religious clerics on camera, voicing their grievances, accusing them of being part of the establishment, of not uh, protecting them, of not taking their side. And those, those barriers of fear have been broken. And I think that's exactly why the violence, the encounters was so fierce, because it was a system that was no longer feared, that was under siege by these young people who were no longer afraid. And while it's clear that the protesters are divided, they're not organized, you know, they, they don't really have clear leaders, I think there will be different iterations of the protest movement in the future. So it might be that what we have seen so far was only the first five minutes of something bigger that will take more time to unfold. And now that the barriers of fear, as you coined it, have fallen, the impact of this historically new and significant grassroots movement will be seen only later, although the protests have been removed physically for the time being. 
I'd like to ask you how the protest movement perceives the current almost outgoing government of Al-Kadimi and um, how do you see its approach uh, to the protesters compared to the previous government of Adel Abdel Mahdi? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So Adel Abdel Mahdi was extremely unpopular. His government is widely seen as having been a very big failure. So taking over the reins after Adel Abdel Mahdi, you know, was, I would say, perhaps not that difficult because it was just the, the bar was so low and protesters welcomed uh, Mustafa Al-Kadami. He was somebody who, who said the right things, who even tried to do the right things. In the beginning, he, he promised uh, accountability, he promised justice, he tried to control the Iranian-backed armed groups, for example, by carrying out raids on Qatar and Hezbollah. And, and that sent, you know, that earned him quite a lot of support from the protesters. It also showed the limitations of his power, that he was not able to follow through on those, on those efforts. But over time, I think it became clear that the things he had promised on could not be delivered, especially when it comes to justice and accountability. And especially looking at how the anniversary played out and how Kalami very skillfully, in a way, managed to end the sit-in by negotiating with a certain subgroup of the protesters by offering jobs, by pulling them to his side in a way. I mean, his, his cabinet, his, his government is seen as a cabinet that even drew a lot of people who were supportive of the protest movement, he drew them into the government. And that strategy ended up uh, working out in a way he, he managed to clear Tahrir Square, which was always you know, a very controversial step. But it also revealed to the protesters that he was not going to make substantial sweeping changes that he had promised in the beginning. Yeah, so I understand that the inclusion of uh, people uh, from the protest movement rather served the goal of, um, yeah, perhaps to uh, weaken, silence the opposition, the protests. Mm -hmm. um, many protesters, including Mustafa, expressed the hope that a shift will occur in the upcoming Iraqi parliamentary elections. An opinion poll that the Konrad Adenauer Foundation conducted among Iraqis in October last year suggested the same. 68% uh, of Iraqis expressed that they would change their vote compared to how they voted in the last elections. The new voting now coincides with the beginning of the protests two years ago. Do you expect any significant changes to take place in the elections, first of all? And then second question, do you believe major protests will take place uh, in October or on October 25th, which uh, marks the beginning of mass protests in Iraq in 2019? Yeah, it's, it's anybody's best guess, to be honest. Um, there has definitely been a shift in terms of mentality. Like Mustafa said, it's, this was an awareness revolution. So a lot of people have changed their mind about the ruling elite. They don't want to vote for these parties that have been around since 2003, uh, which failed to deliver, which uh, have, so to say, become the embodiment of the failures of the post-2003 political order. But to what extent this will be reflected in the forthcoming elections 
will depend on three factors. First of all, what is the alternative? So we have seen new parties register. The question is whether they will be recognized as a genuine alternative to the current political order by the demonstrators. They themselves have a certain reluctance to organize. They see any party that participates in the elections as being part of the system because they know how corrupt and irreformable the system is. So you can only run in the elections if you agree to the terms of the current system. And that's why there are some, there is a group among the protesters who just refuse to participate as a political party and who also refuse to vote, which brings me to the second point. Turnout will be a huge factor determining um, the outcome of the elections. In 2018, turnout was was very low and that played into to the hands of, of for example, groups like Muqtada al-Sadr's uh, Sa'irun because he can easily mobilize his followers. They will show up and vote. But if Iraq's youth, and uh, I think there is if around 60% of Iraqis are under 25, if they show up and vote, uh, those who are eligible, that, that that could significantly affect the outcome of the elections. But the question is, how can we motivate them to show up and vote? And that's when it comes to the third issue, which is whether these elections will be free and fair. A lot of people see the system as, as so flawed that they don't believe that their vote will actually count. They believe that there will be ballot rigging, that even if they turn out, their wish will not be reflected in the actual results. And so if there is no credible monitoring or observation, then that may discourage a lot of people from turning out. Yeah, I believe that especially regaining trust in the electoral process and the political institutions in general is crucial, um, not only for the upcoming election, but as well for the still young Iraqi democracy. I'm afraid we have to leave things there for today. Thanks a lot, Simona, for being with us today and sharing your experiences with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to our audience as well. You have been listening to the podcast from Beirut to Baghdad, and I hope to see you again soon. If you have enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe us and RSS feed us in your favorite podcasting app. Stay tuned on the topics and please follow us as well on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn at Kas Syria Iraq, as well as on Instagram at Kas in Beirut. Mm-hmm.